Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Um, on behalf of the Feminist Review Collective and also the LSE Gender Institute, I'd like to welcome you very much to this evening. Thank you for coming out on a miserable December evening. Um, this is the Feminist Review annual panel, and it is this year co-hosted by the LSE Gender Institute. We've got three speakers today, as you know, who will be discussing the issue of feminism in the media, and the idea is that we will then open it out to... Uh, broader discussion. Um, but before I introduce the speakers and, and uh, you hear them, I'd just like to say a couple of words about Feminist Review, the journal, and to explain, um, and to explain the, the idea of the panel. Feminist Review is a peer-reviewed interdisciplinary uh, journal setting new agendas for feminism, inviting critical reflection on the relationship between materiality, representation, theory and practice, subjectivity and communities, contemporary and historical formations. And the FR Collective is committed to exploring gender in its multiple forms and interrelationships. When Feminist Review first appeared in 1979, it described itself as a socialist and feminist journal, a vehicle to unite research and theory with political practice and to contribute to the development of both. Challenges of race, class, and sexuality have been central to the development of the journal. And 30 years on, FR remains committed to these core values. And it's in the spirit of those kind of core values uh, that I'd like to open up this discussion tonight. We have a distinguished panel here of academics, practitioners, and activists to speak to this, to this topic of feminism in the media. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to introduce all of the speakers, and then they'll each speak in turn, and then and as I say, we'll open it up uh, to the floor. Um, they're each going to talk for about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, after, the, after the event, uh, I'd like to invite you all to join us for a glass of wine uh, just outside. Um, but I'll remind you of that at the end, <laughs> the important thing. Okay, so the panellists tonight are... On my far right, uh, Natalie Hammond. Natalie is editor of the Common is Free section of the Guardian newspaper. And I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this, also an alumni of the LSE Gender Institute. Um, Lola Okolozzi is a writer, teacher and activist and prominent member of Black Feminists. And Tracy Reynolds is a professor. She's had a promotion since we did the... Uh, so congratulations on that. Professor uh, of Social and Policy Research at London South Bank University. So I'm now going to hand straight over to Natalie. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Sorry. Um, I was going to start with an apology anyway. Um, as the sole representative of the media on the panel, I carry the burden of our collective sins, and there are many of those. So I thought I should start by saying sorry for a few of our worst reflexes and excesses when it comes to representations of women, let alone feminism. For the Daily Mail's sidebar of shame. For the three pretty girls that are always photographed jumping in coverage of A-level results for reducing the 70s to a decade of dirty old men and erasing the role feminists played then in challenging the sexual violence while at the same time presenting such issues as only a thing of the past, for the fact that pretty much every time you write about a woman doing something, going to a political party conference, appearing in court, achieving world peace, we have to include a paragraph on what she's wearing. 
for the endless coverage of corporate feminism, such as, such as the representation of women in boardrooms, but the silence on so much else that our movement in all its many manifestations is demanding, for the lack of diversity and the dominance of certain voices over all others, for the defensiveness when called out on our positions of privileges, for the reductiveness and the lack of structural analysis. I could go on. I think all of these criticisms and more apply to much of the mainstream media, but tonight I would like to argue that it isn't all our fault and we aren't all bad. As a journalist and a feminist, I want to give some context to this debate, lest any aspiring journalists in the audience, and I hope there are some, think the profession and the practice of the media is only ever contradictory to that of feminism. First, I will outline three reasons why media representations of feminism fail. Then I will discuss three interventions I have made to try to do things differently since becoming editor of The Guardian's Comment is Free. As researchers into the media have demonstrated, what is deemed to be news is highly constructed and reflects dominant cultural and social assumptions about who is or is not important. The gatekeepers of news through which stories are filtered have to make choices about what to accept or reject. And these choices are inevitably based on a number of factors including class, education and attitude towards political and social structures. The notion of a journalist's objectivity has been rightly challenged although it is also right that we still strive for it with this in mind. If we all accept, as I'm sure we do, that society at large is beset by various forms of power and prejudice, it is no surprise that these inequalities are reflected and refracted in the media. For example, the Sutton Trust and Counting Women In has demonstrated that the media is dominated by those who went to Oxbridge and by white men in senior positions, a reflection, I would argue, of the dominance of a small group of people in wider society. It is no surprise, then, that a study carried out by The Guardian in 2011 revealed the average percentage of female reporters in the media was 22% compared to 77% of male reporters, or that a Reuters study this year revealed there are currently only two female national editors, that female journalists are less likely than men to achieve more senior positions, and that women who do secure senior journalism jobs are more likely than men to be childless. All that, as the Media Diversified campaign has found, frequently every image featured on the front pages of national newspapers is of a white person, and that when the media does cover stories of people from diverse backgrounds and class, the stories are often negative, reinforcing stereotypes. I would also suggest that some of these inequities have beset the feminist movement itself. To quote Lola's brilliant piece on Commenters Free yesterday, within the media and indeed the movement, there has been much celebration of our ongoing feminist resurgence, yet our success is being marred by infighting. The failures of the wider feminist movement is that it continually fails to capture and reflect the extreme differences in how women live their lives. Or as Nina Power wrote in the Feminist Times recently, Look at the way in which feminism itself has been co-opted by those who would use it to justify war or sell shampoo or to police who gets to count as a woman. How hard it is to pick out a single feminism that gets everything right and yet how unhelpful it is to believe that multiple feminisms have equal value and equal relevance to all women across class, rage, age, geographical location. Which leads me to my second reason why I think the media gets it wrong when it comes to representations of feminism. The media, in telling stories, is having to communicate complex world events in a way that can be understood by its readers quickly and clearly. Inevitably, this means it, have to, it has to condense, reduce, summarise and simplify. 
In this often skilled and important process, nuance and complexity is usually discarded. For example, in the initial coverage of the US TV programme Girls, it was somehow deemed too complicated to nuance the praise with a raced critique. This obviously links to my previous point, because in those usually stressful, time-pressured moments when journalists and editors have to choose who to call, who to quote, who to picture, they fall back on their own assumptions, prejudices and experiences. The third reason why I think the media often gets it wrong when it comes to representation of feminism is that, in a way, we have become a victim of our own success. Not that long ago, feminist issues were confined to the women's pages of a newspaper if they were covered at all. Now there is a huge proliferation of spaces for feminist debates in the media, largely a consequence of the internet, which itself, I would argue, is a consequence of, and in part a cause of, the resurgence in feminist campaigning on and offline we are witnessing at present. Maybe inevitably, those feminists in the media who are called upon most regularly to share their views perpetuate a form of what's called career feminism, where a somewhat understandable desire to get their individual voices heard and their particular message across ultimately risks compromising or silencing the movement's wider or differing messages. Selma James pinpoints what the opposite of career feminism looks like in her recent book, Sex, Race and Class, where she writes... Politics, if it is fueled by a great will to change the world rather than by personal ambition, offers a chance to know the world and to be more self-conscious of the actual life you are living rather than being taken over by what you are told you should feel, a chance to live, in other words, an authentic life. I became the editor of The Guardian's Comment is Free in 2010, though I've worked on the desk for a few more years than that. When the site was launched in 2006, it inverted the traditional model of newspaper comment. Previously, a small number of columnists, often drawn from an ever smaller section of society in terms of gender, race, class and location, opined week in, week out on global and domestic politics, culture and society. Readers could respond by writing letters and then emails to the editor, a tiny proportion of which were selected and published. (coughs) Comment is free, on the other hand, started from the assumption that there are thousands of people across the world with voices and opinions that are also worth hearing and that this diversity can be a strength. This extended not only to the hugely increased and varied number of people we published on the website, but also to the space we opened up for readers to debate these articles. I want to outline three ways in which we have built on this potential to transform comment journalism's representation of feminism. Firstly, we have hugely increased the diversity of the writers we publish on the site. This graph, for example, collated by lovegraphs.com, shows how the number of women we publish has hugely increased since the site's launch. The red line at the top is the number of male contributors and the blue line is female. As an aside, when I saw this graph, I cheered. To me, it shows clear and positive progress. Those two lines are really narrowing, yet it was framed as not good enough. In a way, it isn't. But there are still times when I'm the only woman in a senior editorial meeting, even at The Guardian, so any encouragement when we do make small steps of progress is very welcome. Numbers are not everything, of course, and woman does not automatically equal feminist. But opening up in this site, the site in this way has also led to a huge increase in the range of subjects we cover under the umbrella of feminism, as well as an increase in the number of women who read the site. 
It has focused our mind on increasing diversity in all its forms, so non-white, disabled, LGBTQ, migrant and working-class voices are sought out and published too. And it's heartening to see that the various ways in which we cover the debates around gender are often the most read pieces on the site. Secondly, we have tried to address the sometimes simplistic way in which feminism is framed in the media by publishing both more academic feminists on the one hand and more campaigning grassroots feminists on the other. While recognising that the media is a different space from academia and activism, we have tried to dig deeper into feminist debates and provide a place for thinking in a more complex way. Academics and activists are often marginalised from the mainstream media with the excuse that they don't write in journalese or do not have a history of publishing in the media or do not have enough name recognition. There is certainly a great skill to writing for the media and much of our time is spent working with academics and activists to craft a piece in the right tone and smile, style. But dismissing such voices outright often seems a shorthand for not wanting to engage with the arguments they are putting forward. There should be a balance between making complex ideas overly simple in the name of a misplaced populism and publishing jargon which may be alienating, especially if it isn't explained. I sense a real hunger from readers for a more in-depth critical response to the daily happenings in the world, and we shouldn't be deterred by those who fear the radical intent in such work. We should be further inspired by it. So, for the record, we are not afraid of using the word intersectionality on comment is free. Which leads me on to my third and final point. Opening up our comment pieces to readers who can post responses in the threads under articles has huge potential, I think, to challenge dominant narratives in the media and elsewhere. It's not perfect, of course. The comment threads can be hugely enlightening and the best of them are a joy to behold, but they can also be depressing, demeaning or just dull and some writers understandably find it very challenging to engage in them. We have a strict talk policy at The Guardian where personal abuse and other hate speech is removed from threads as soon as moderators are aware of it. We work hard, both technologically and editorially, to improve the nature of the debates on the site, intervening where possible to challenge negative comments, especially on threads debating feminist issues. More could be done, I think, to explore whether lazy representations of gender issues in the media fuel such hate speech online. It has been said that the existence of sexism in comment threads justifies the need for feminism. Well, yes, but look around. So much in life needs to be challenged. So much justifies a feminist lens. And feminism has a long and healthy tradition of dissent. We shouldn't underestimate the power of debating within reason people who disagree with us. It's how we change hearts and minds. In all the column inches spilt recently over Lily Allen's recent song about whether it was feminist or racist or not, it was a reader comment in a thread that alerted me to Laura Mulver's song, That's All Right, which seemed to me the best response of all. It opens with the following lyrics. I will never be what you want, and that's all right, because my skin ain't light and my body ain't tight, and that's all right. But if I might, I must stand and fight. Tell me, who made you the centre of the universe? which I think is a nice note to end on. I hope you found some of these reflections thought-provoking and I'd very much welcome your ideas for how things ought to be done differently in the media when it comes to the Q&A. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, 
thank you to um, Feminist Review Collective and the LSE Gender Institute for inviting me to speak to you today on feminism and the media. And thank you, Natalie, for a really lovely speech. Um, I am a teacher, I'm a writer, I'm a mother, uh, and a black feminist, proudly. Um, and I um, have only very recently um, been given um, a platform from which to speak um, in the media. Um, and before that, I was a really frustrated black feminist who would engage with a lot of the um, debates that were happening in feminism just kind of um, passively. In, and I say passively in that... Um, I didn't have a way to um, express my opinions about what I thought about the movement other than to blog on the Black Feminist um, blog that we have. Um, you, you can visit it, by the way. Um, and, um, and it felt that voices like mine um, were really marginal and weren't being heard. And so um, my uh, reflections today... Um, are about uh, uh, really me speaking from that position um, of what do um, women who um, are the marginal voices within the dominant um, movement, um, how do they feel about how feminism um, is represented in the media? And um, because I'm a teacher, I've, I've given you objectives. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so what I would like you to think about... Um, are um, what feminist voices are marginalised in the media, and I think Natalie touched upon that very well. Um, and I want to do so through a focus on how the debates around inter intersectionality have been conducted within the media, because I think it says a lot about the frustrations that um, I know lots of um, LGBTQ, um, disabled, working class, black um, migrant um, or undocumented feminists have been feeling and levelling. Um, so feminism um, in the media undoubtedly is, uh, and I'm sure most of you know this, is largely uh, white, straight, able-bodied and fairly middle class. Um, and in the piece that I wrote um, Yesterday, um, I make a point of saying that this is not to um, say that I don't respect a lot of the women that you can see there or the campaigns that they uh, are putting forward, but that that obviously is problematic, that um, in essence um, a lot of voices are being silenced. Um, and I want to focus really on how the intersectionality debate within the UK context um, began. Um, for those of you who aren't aware of it, um, it kind of flared up um, after Caitlin Moran had um, interviewed the creator of um, the hit TV show Girls and then was tweeted... Um, by a white feminist who asked her about whether or not she had um, quizzed uh, Durnham on the rep re representation and diversity within the, the show. And Caitlin Moran um, regrettably um, said that she literally couldn't give a shit. Um, and obviously um, that got a lot of backs up. Um, what was 
more interesting to me was um, kind of leaving Caitlin Moran aside was the arguments that came up after that happened because she was kind of silent within all this and there were quite a number of um, white feminists um, who had were coming to her aid really and saying look you're getting this wrong and let's not be divisive um, you know she's really kind of um, putting feminism out there for all of us um, and that idea that debate and critique was actually um, a way of instigating division started to stick really um, and we kind of saw it again, less so um, with, um, with really Lily Allen. Um, and just a few weeks ago, Sarah Morrison writing for The Independent had the headline, and I, I don't know if it was ironic, but um, that we need to leave Miley and Lily alone, the shock new faces of feminism. And the new faces of feminism, obviously, you can see look surprisingly uh, familiar. Um, they're white, they're young, um, and privileged. Um, and what that um, has kind of done is reminded me, and within definitely the black feminist uh, circles that I um, operate in, we're constantly um, tearing our hairs out because we feel that these debates that we're having um, are really just repetitions of old arguments within the feminist movement. And I, and I want to um, kind of touch on a, a few things and, and talk to you about how I think um, they've been repeated in the present. So um, last, um, I think, spring, um, the conservative feminist Louise Mensch um, talked about intersectionality and, and came up with this phrase, intersectional bollocks. And she wanted reality-based feminism, which was, um, um, she, she thought, well, based in reality to state the obvious. Um, but for her, online feminism was um, wasting most of its time in frenzied internal debate about absolutely nothing and in the process solving absolutely nothing. And when I read that, um, I think I kind of screamed a little bit. Um, but what, what was important, really, other than you know, what she had written, because I think she's indicative of um, generally the, the, the perception about the perceptions that um, feminists who perhaps aren't aware of intersectionality or don't want to use the word or find it difficult, she's um, indicative of the feelings around the, the, the issue and the concept and the word. And basically that is that um, it's faddish, um, it's divisive, and really you're just being pernickety. Just stop being pernickety because the, the biggest issue really is gender and we all know that. And, and yes, race counts and, and sexuality counts, but, you know, come on. Um, and we've been here before. Um, the black feminist abolitionist Sojourner Truth, um, when she was um, um, campaigning, um, was faced with this kind of the elision of 
black women. So the first wave feminists um, were campaigning for women to get the vote. Um, And it was quite obvious that women didn't actually include black women um, because they were doing so in opposition to black men who also wanted to vote. So this, this, has, this idea of feminism for some um, has been with us right from the inception of the, the movement. And in the 70s, we've got second wave black feminists talking about the necessity of the movement, thinking about interlocking um, oppressions. And that is really the major intervention into feminism that black feminists have brought. And it's it's interesting to me that within the media, um, this kind of significant idea and concept um, is being kind of, um, to some extent, or was being shunted. And that was also a reason for a lot of the anger Um, So, in terms of where we are at now, um, or where we kind of were, I I think we're somewhere slightly different, um, is that the the critiques that were being levelled at the wider movement by black, LGBTQ, disabled, working class um, feminists was that we were entering the, the debates around the word in the media as dissenting and marginal voices at the one hand, but the, the, the attitude and the kind of um, reaction to our critique was that we were being um, disruptive and divisive. And so it's, it was a kind of weird um, pairing of being really marginal but then being really powerful, powerful enough to disrupt the cohesiveness of the movement, being absent and kind of accidentally absent. We forgot to mention you, um, but also being um, too vocal. And where that leaves um, a lot of... uh, feminists who uh, exist along different axes of, of oppression is... Where? When are we allowed to um, critique? When are we allowed to pull the wider movement up on its shortcomings? Um, And so now I want to think about um, how we do intersectionality because um, in this kind of climate of division, um, what we've seen happening is that... um, the word is rubbish, it's either too academic or um, it's a way of, in some ways, shaming um, feminists who, oh, you've never heard of intersectionality. God, you must be a terrible feminist. Um, I cannot deal with you. Um, and I think that, that there's a problem there that we need to be mindful of um, and work on. Um, So in this kind of divisive atmosphere, critique and debate um, have to be defended against. It seems that I I have sympathy sometimes um, with white feminists who um, are receiving this 
what feels like an attack uh, and feeling like they need to defend themselves against it. But that is possibly the last thing that they should do. Um, because what happens is that positions become really entrenched and it has felt um, for a few months that w what's been happening in the media between feminists in various blogs and sometimes within mainstream media um, is that positions are really entrenched and people aren't really wanting to talk or um, deal with differing opinions about the issue, um, which for me is saddening because it means we're, we're not doing intersectionality, we're not coming um, together across our differences, um, and that's problematic. Um, so I've said all that, which um, seems depressing, but I do think that um, there are um, green shoots of hope. Um, However superficially, intersectionality is being talked about. Um, it's, we can see people talking about it in blogs. Um, you know, as Natalie said, you can obviously read about it um, within The Guardian and, and other publications. It's, it is something that is get, gaining currency. Um, what I am mindful of, though, is that... We need to think about it not being just co-opted. Um, okay, yes, you've, you've used the term, you know what it means, um, but that's about it. And inter your, your sense of um, an intersectional feminism is based on you talking about intersectionality in a tweet or a blog. So I want to end by the questions that I'm posing really to all of us in here, is how we move away from, and I think you mentioned it, Natalie, how we move away from critique being seen as attack? How do we ensure that a wider range of women are called upon to represent the movement, yet that this is not merely tokenism? And, and how do we ensure that the bruising debates that we have um, engaged in have a positive impact on women's lives beyond the media? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me today, and I feel very honoured and privileged to be here and to contribute to the discussions. And I'm going to be picking up some of the issues which have been raised in the previous presentations. Um, the first thing I will say is that the paper which I will be presenting draws on the work which I'm doing with my colleague Umut Urel at the Open University. Umut would have loved to have been here today but she's currently on maternity leave, so what I'm going to be doing is just drawing on some of the debates that we've been recently discussing. So what I will do today um, is just to interrogate how the deficit model still continues to underpin media discourses on black and migrant mothers and also the cultural representations of their family life. And in particular, um, what I want to do is to pay particular attention to the discriminatory, discursive practices expressed and projected in the media that continues to shape the values, attitudes and judgment on black and minority ethnic and migrant women. 
I'll also be asking how black feminism can reframe some of these debates and give voice to these women. So as I just mentioned previously, um, the discussion draws on the study which I'm doing with Umut on migrant mothers and how they're involved in making new citizens. And as part of this project, we, um, reframe, um, we are reframing migrant mothers as citizens and we're asking what we can learn by understanding the caring, cultural and social practices of black and migrant women. We also look at the diverse ways in which migrant mothers from different social, ethnic, cultural and political positions contribute to making MUMOs or citizenship. And it's really through the study that we've re- returned to this issue of the role of the media in the constructions of black, minority, ethnic and migrant women's lives. It's a theme that we've previously addressed in our studies. So, for example, my work, which focuses on specifically on African-Caribbean women and Umut's work on, on documented migrant women and also migrant women from the global south. And one of the things that we've identified and a, a consistent commonality, commonality has been that the media representations position black and migrant women as deficit, as one of dysfunction and as one of victim. The media plays a determining role in the, con- in the creation of public opinion. The news information, opinions expressed, and the cultural representations projected create and reflect values, attitudes, and judgments with respect to our cultural, social, and political environment. As I said before, it's also integral to the continuity of discriminatory, discursive practices. Migrant women, especially migrant mothers, are embodied subjects that are ethnicised and gendered. And their dual otherness of gender and their minority ethnic status constitutes a decisive cultural mechanism that often denies agency to these women. Prevalent in media representations, for example, we have the ongoing image and definition of the immigrant women from the perspective of domesticity. So emphasises her family status. She's often the traditional model of the married woman. She's dependent, she's passive, she's limited to the domestic space. <coughs> the presence of the immigrant woman is invoked under the notion of family, maternity and reproduction, with scarce recognition of their individuality outside of those domestic spaces. This means that the broad range of activities, occupations and initiatives by enterprising migrant women are rarely, if ever, recognised. The media community similarly invokes the migrant woman and the female image as being symbolic and representing the whole immigrant community. So, in gendered representations of a nation... Women are often seen as a stable element who transmits established cultural traditions. Men, on the other hand, are viewed as a dynamic, modernising gender. And in the case of racialised migrant women, these representations are invoked even more strongly to emphasise their cultural difference from the mainstream. 
So as Anthea's Youth Al Davis points out, migrant mothers often become the carriers of the group and they become the biological and symbolic reproducers of the community. And what's interesting is that their cultural otherness, so that's one image, not one, is expressed, the, the cultural otherness which is expressed is based on the profile which is often seen as furthest away from the local culture. So preeminence is usually given to the Muslim woman as the archetype of the immigrant woman and she's the marker of difference and the embodied other. The female immigrant model becomes the point of reference of all immigrant women, despite the fact that the data on female immigration provides a much more plural scenario. And the customary and the customary visibility of immigrant women in the mass media is generally linked to problems such as abuse, violence, prostitution. But it's just not a case of positioning these women as victims of abuse, so usually in a form of trafficking, forced marriages, genital mutilation, um, but also as these women, and particularly mothers, who are abused in the system. So, as said before, they also become symbolic representations of the whole immigrant community who are perceived as abuse in the system. And at political moments in time, this becomes heightened. So, for example, we have the recent moral panic which has been ripped up around Bulgarians and um, the potential of them moving to England or the UK en masse. And migrant women become the embodiment of immigration and all that is wrong with immigration legislation and British EU membership to the nation. So the moral panic around Bulgarians is often being couched in terms of the migrant women and mothers flooding the country, taking scarce resources of jobs, school places, health care and draining public funds. And we have witnessed increased news items and media coverage about health tourism, so again, this is usually about migrant women who are flying in to get health treatment for themselves and their children. <coughs> the increased interest amongst media scholars in studying the portrayal of minority and migrant women, especially how they've been portrayed in the newspaper and television news, confirms the negative connotations associated with these portrayals, such as problems, deviance and deficit and conflict. In policy debates which foreground the notions of troubled families, problem parenting, um, deficit parenting and also families at risk, which have been given increasingly media coverage, it's interesting to reflect on the way in which race is being treated in this decency discourse. So these images of troubled families or problem parenting are typically characterised by the feckless single mother, the lazy welfare mother with children by multiple partners, and of course the immigrant mother with multiple children abuse in the system. So this is just an account here of just picking out some of the coverage. This is a health tourism one. And again, it's very much about a woman flying in from Nigeria so that she could have her baby and then flying out again. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't want to read this whole quote, but I thought it was really important because this very much 
confirms that whole stereotype about the immigrant mother and um, you know so I'll just pick out some of the key points about the fact that there's a, a large population boom in London and the most of that is attributed to mothers born from outside the UK and um, um, what she goes on to say is that the big families that she encounters are the children trooping behind their mothers from I think Somalia and whereas um, the middle classes are constrained by um, housing as the most effective form of contraception, um, you know, there's this idea around, you know, this, these mothers just having multiple children which are going unconstrained and it's impacting on not just the population growth but also the resources in the country, draining the resources in the country. So, in feminist discussions critiquing this analysis, oftentimes similarities are um, highlighted between black and ethnic minority women and also poor white working class women in the way that this decency model operates. Yet, ethnicised and racialised characteristics which underpin these stereotypical categories are often missing from feminist analysis. And this is despite the fact that in various points in history, policymakers, media and social commentators have attributed deviant parenting to black and, mi- 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 sorry, and migrant cultural models and practices, including our so-called dysfunctional family structures. Back on the political agenda also are debates around biological determinism, so, for example, the perceived racial difference in intelligence, with black people being at the bottom of the intellectual strata. And I think what we're witnessing is an insidious and pervasive racialization of these biological representations of migrant women, which is keep creeping through the back door of media representations. So, indeed, it would be fair to say that the racialization of deficit parenting and black mothering and black mothers has been a mainstay of media debates on the family. And we can map this as far back as the early 1900s when the problem of a coloured immigrant family first came to the public attention. But increasingly, what we are witnessing today is that it's become more coded and implied so that narratives of race and racism are embedded in the cultural commentary of media accounts of what we've been termed, or what has been termed as Britain's broken society. And we saw this racialisation of deficit parenting in the aftermath of the August 2011 riots, whereby narratives of race, racism and immigration were implicated and embedded in the cultural commentary. So that, as Gail Lewis commented, overt racialisation was not always required for meaning. But what we did see, and it was interesting just mapping this, is that we saw words such as gang cultures, uncivilised, intellectually underdeveloped, and animalistic terms which were being used to describe the rioters, and also terms such as savage, wild, feral youths. And these acted as words, coded words to denote race. And at various points in history, these terms have been explicitly and and implicitly used to construct black family life and also um, understandings of black femininity and also black masculinity. And following on from the riots, 
What's also been more overtly um, promoted in the coverage is this link which has been established between the high crime rates amongst black youth and poor parenting by black mothers and family structures, so it's been blamed on one-parent families and the absent fathers. So in the final part of my discussion, I just wanted to reflect on um, some of these issues and just pick up the discussion by asking questions around the fact that we know that there's a lack of knowledge in terms of recognising and representing the everyday lived realities of black and migrant women. And I just wanted to ask, whose interest does it really serve to not represent these women's voices and to keep them invisible? So the negative news and media portrayals can be seen of examples of what Bordeaux claims and labels as symbolic violence, which means that the symbolic capital through, for example, communication is used as a means of power, which may in turn reinforce an institutional and structural form of discrimination. But it's also important to point out that not all migrant women are positioned as deficit. So we're increasingly seeing this construction and this division between the good migrant woman and mother and the bad migrant mother. The good migrant woman is usually from the global north or she's from the BRIC nation, so BRIC, what is by Brazil, Russia, India and China, and she's migrating with economic resources and capitals versus the bad migrant mother, who's usually from Africa, Caribbean, and some parts of South Asia, and also some former Eastern European territories. <laughs> and these women are usually seen as bad for um, you know, creating um, deficit family life and just bad for society in general. So the research that we're doing contends that migrant women's mothering does not simply reproduce ethnic groups, but challenges the boundaries of ethnic and national groups. And it's very much around increasing the understanding of these women. But I wanted just to pick up again on what role feminism can play in challenging these deficit and dysfunctional images. So, underpinning our discussion of migrant mothers is the use of black feminist theory, and we very much use this as an analytical tool, and it operates as an oppositional and critical lens to critique white feminist theorising around mothering and a family. Black feminism returns us to the multiple and complex ways structures of power reproduce social divisions in the everyday lives of ethnicised and racialised migrant women. The concept of um, intersectionality, a term first introduced by Kimberly Crenshaw and then re-articulated within the scholarship of black feminism, calls attention to the way that race and ethnicity intersects and overlaps with gender, class and sexuality to create gendered and racialised inequality that are universally felt by all women of colour but at the same time is culturally and historically specific. Using intersectionality as an analytical tool connects the diverse and divergent mothering and parenting experiences of the migrant and black mothers that we've been working with into claims of a collective knowledge that is based on interpreting the social world from a particular standpoint of gendered and racialised subjugation. It also allows us to understand the ways in which identity, power and ideology intersect 
to maintain specific and varied patterns and processes of inequality and discrimination, structuring and reflecting these women's lives. Another point of interest for me has been in understanding how normative Western ideologies of heterosexuality, womanhood and motherhood and femininity get represented and played out in the media. But by doing so, how do these representations cement inequality and also the economic exploitation of black and migrant women, particularly in the labour market? As embodied and the embodiment of racialised and ethnicised other, many migrant women from the global south have much less employment rights, for example, compared to non-migrant women's. Simply put, many of these women do not have the legal protection and support available to them compared to non-migrant women. And this has additional consequences for them in terms of accessing social welfare provision services. Feminist scholarship, which takes account of globalisation and the economic migration of maternal labour, also shows how family and maternal policies are linked to migration policies. And black feminism has been very much at the forefront of examining the care drain effect, um, whereby um, mothers from the global south are migrating to the global north to take up the caring responsibilities, leaving their children to be cared cared for by other family members. But this work also, I think, shows the devalued nature of caring worldwide. And it also highlights the public and global nature of a seemingly private and local arrangement, such as the hiring of foreign domestic workers and the low status which is afforded to these women. So I just wanted to conclude there by just highlighting that um, it's really important to just think about, you know, Yes, we know that there's deficit and dysfunctional images. So to think about what is it which is underpinning this, it's about thinking about the interrelationship between white feminism and black feminism, and it's about thinking how, um, as feminists, feminists, whether we're black feminists, white feminists, however we want to call and name our feminists, how we are um, colluding in inequality, but also an important part of reframing some of these debates. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you to all all the panellists. I'm going to open it up to the floor now. For uh, we have about an hour for questions, comments, debate, etc. So, who would like to start us off? Oh, I I ought to say that when you raise your hand to ask a question, um, one of our stewards will arrive with a microphone. uh, So, if you could just wait for the microphone. In the middle there, thank you. Hello, can you hear me all right? Yes. Thanks so much. Um, I just wanted to say that you were all fantastic. That was so interesting. Um, I just had a little bit of a comment um, to, to Natalie particularly. Um, I was really interested in the second point you were making when you were talking about problems um, with media representations, and you, you framed this idea of career, career feminism. Um, and my, my work's actually about um, 
what I'm calling professional feminists. So I think it sort of touches on that because I think obviously what you're saying is so true. It's it's really important that there's there's a much greater diversity of feminist voices in the media. But I also think that's that's um, something that needs to be worked on. It's not it's not a problem of people having feminist careers or being professional feminists because I think you know even even you as a panel are a fantastic example of people who are obviously taking feminism through your work with you and that's something that's that's really valuable i think although um, sometimes when it's talked about publicly it can be um, cast in contrast to activism that happens outside of people's professional lives um, yeah so I just wanted to, to comment on that it was, I guess it was probably more to do with just the way you'd framed it um, thanks Natalie did you want to that was addressed to you yeah I, yeah. <laughs> I, I completely take your point and I um, I purposefully didn't name anybody because I, I didn't want to get into seeming like I was attacking individuals um, and that I think if you do that, that sort of negates the fact that actually there are a lot of structural things going on here. Um, um, I think maybe a better way of coming at it is, is those, those women that has, have achieved that status have, have maybe got more... Um, Reason to, you know, in the language of, of these debates, check their privilege and see whether they themselves are silencing voices or, or perspectives that actually, in their very, you know, privileged position of having a voice in, in the mainstream media or at the top of an organisation or wherever, they, they could use more productively. Hello, my question is for Natalie too. Um, one hears a lot about increasing women on boards, 30-30, um, you know, quotas for boardrooms. Uh, but given the very low proportion of female editors, um, both on television and in mainstream media, I was wondering what do you think the particular challenges and barriers are to women rising to editorship um, in media outlets? And, um, you know, particularly given that women editors have so much ability and influence to be able to change the way in which women are perceived more generally in society um, through the editorial column that they may have. I wish I had the answer. I guess, um, I guess one, um, one big thing is... Um, women taking time out of work to have children um, and so um, for some women that becomes something that either means that their organisations kind of suppress their um, and moving up the, the organisation or that they themselves decide that they don't want to take on which you know what is an incredibly stressful demanding 24-7 job um, <coughs> I don't know, I think it's probably the same barriers that exist elsewhere, that there are the same sort of prejudices and discriminations against women um, that exist in sort of any, any profession and maybe there hasn't been enough organising um, within organisations, whether it's unions or whatever it is, to encourage that. Um, I don't know, I feel... Yeah, I'm not... I'm not I'd, be, I'd love to hear ideas if there's things that people think the media could do to shift that. 
We've got um, several hands up now, so I'm going to take I'm going to take maybe three questions um, at a time. So there's one here, one behind, and one bit further back. Person with the green um, cup. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about the uh, the exceptional woman trope, and I wanted to ask. Um, do you think that we should be focusing on getting women into boardrooms and editorships, or do you think we should be focusing on building solidarity and, and sort of a, a collective movement? Thank you. Um, three really interesting and very different talks, and I was absolutely gripped by all of them. Um, my question is for um, Natalie as well, and it was particularly interesting because I've never really thought about... Um, comment is free before, except in a sort of very abstract way. And I always kind of assumed from the title that it was very much about sort of getting lots of kind of um, very sort of open, you know, very open approach, very different voices. And I wondered, and that's, you know, obviously to some extent the case, and I wondered how do you sort of negotiate that kind of aim of comment is free with your having a sort of political perspective that you would like to see um, expressed and promoted in the media. I was wondering how, because that must be quite a difficult sort of um, tightrope to walk. Can you hold on to that thought for a minute? Because there was... Yes, uh, sorry, there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for the talk. Uh, it was very interesting. Um, I'm a PhD student at uh, LSE. Um, I'm from Sri Lanka. So I'm one of the other South Asian countries. Um, I just, I'm just curious um, to know what the cause, uh, if you have thought about it, for this portrayal of women in media. And uh, because whether it's values or education in the UK system, because it is UK media that we were focusing on. And uh, because uh, just a sort of a thing that I've noticed, it's, it's uh, rather different if I look at my country. Even little girls uh, here who go to school, they all have uh, long hair. Whereas in uh, Sri Lanka, uh, all the girls, most of the girls have sh short hair because uh, mothers just find it easy to wash. <laughs> but here all the girls have long hair. So is, is, is this sort of a perception that's coming through education or uh, religion or, or something that's reflecting in media? And, and something that's sort of filtering through because even back in my country, uh, if you take public, the public sector or even media, women, there are several women who hold high positions. So what, I just, I'm just curious about the cause that's, that's being reflected in media. Thanks. Tracy, do you want to take that, that last oh, one and then we'll go back to, to Natalie for I do think it's unfair to blame the media for all the ills in the world. Um, I think that the media really is, it reflects what's going on in society. So it was a really valid point, Natalie, that the underrepresentation of, um, you know, women and even more so for, for BME women in the media just reflects what's going on in many org other organisations, I'm sure, including the LSE. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> But also, and also LSBU, not just not, not, you know. <laughs> um, so, in terms of your point about what's going on in society, um, I think it's really hard to um, unpack that because I think, 
particularly for black minority and migrant women from certain countries, I'm calling them the global south, um, very much positioned as the other, and um, there's a lot of currency um, from the dominant groups to, to keep women as that, including for white feminists themselves, because that gives them something to position themselves against, if that makes sense. No, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Looking at me blankly. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I just think, just to come back to the point about the fact that what's going on in society is just represented in the media, um, so it's not fair to blame the media for all the problems. I'll just leave it at that. Um on the first question about the exceptional woman trope and should the focus be on getting women to the boardroom or collective solidarity I mean I, I've you know, got a bit of a game with myself that on any given day you can find a story in the media about the number of women in boardrooms and you know, there's a whole load of problematic things going on there whilst also it would be, would it, would it be great if there were more women in boardrooms or would it be great if we just got rid of boardrooms um, <laughs> I think so I think in a way it depends on the context but probably both and in, in the case of the media having a, a, a woman editor if she, if she had feminist politics could help the collective so but yeah I, I, I definitely am critical of this sort of corporate feminism strand and in terms of the question about comment is free um, Yes, you know the, the line is we publish a plurality of voices, but our centre of gravity as a you know liberal left wing whatever label you think fits the Guardian. Lots of people debate it. Publication is clear. So um, the C. P. Scott quote I had up there, you know, the friends of our opponents as much the voice of our opponents, as much of our friends has, has a right to be heard. So yeah, we're very open and. Um, you know, I do try to be objective whilst questioning that. Um, and, but, um, yeah, I, I am a political person and that will influence my work and any editor of any section will take that section in a particular direction and this is one direction in which I've chosen to take Commons 3 with the backing of, of, of the editor. Thank you. Next round of questions. We've got a question. We've got lots and lots of questions. So uh, I'm going to go one. We haven't had one from over there yet. Two. Um, uh, three. And then we'll do another round. <laughs> it's a question for uh, all the panel. Um, may, may come across a bit lighthearted, but I think it's quite important to ask the question nevertheless. Um, what are your tips for checking so-called privilege when doing feminism in everyday media. Thank you. About uh, the way news on women and feminism are usually framed, um, in uh, grassroots feminism in South America, where I, I come from, has been for a while trying to put out there that under neoliberalism, all the issues that have to do with gender inequality have been pushed aside into like the social and cultural kind of issues, uh, taking them out of the core issues of politics and uh, economics. And I kind of have a feeling that the media reproduces this. It's always framing these news as in like the social things and never like being part of the main news, like the really structural problems that actually need to be solved to get gender equality. So, so I kind of wanted to know your perspectives on that. 
Thank you. And there was, there was a question here. Um, uh, thank you for your talks. My question was um, that we the the talks focused a lot on. Um, kind of news um, media in that respect, newspapers, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on um, the implications of representation of women in um, things like movies or celebrity culture and um, and how that uh, what, the, what the implications of that are on, on the, because it also affects a younger um, younger audience who then become um, the adults and also um, if there if you have any um, views on how uh, race is represented in in movies celebrity culture etc okay thank you um, since it was to all the panel I'd like to start with Lola on how, how the first question was about how you check your privilege and everyday media in your everyday media use? Um, 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 I think um, checking your privilege, uh, it's about um, remembering or trying to remember and foreground exactly where you are privileged. And I think that if you're, if you're mindful of that, then you will be... Um, Watchful of of making generalisations or speaking for particular groups and and question yourself before you speak about particular groups. So I think it's um, grounding yourself and, and being honest with yourself um, about where, even though as if, if we're talking about feminists within the media, even as a woman, um, where you might. Um, experience privilege, um, and I, th- I think we're only um, we're only just starting to be honest about about that, um, and and that goes for you know black feminists, that goes for white feminists, that goes for feminists from working class backgrounds. All of us will have some area of privilege, so it's just being honest about that. Um, to the question about um, politics and economics, um, I think it's simply just much more palatable. Um, it, it, it seems like um, something that is winnable if we talk about um, it in terms of the cultural uh, rather than what do we do about the systemic inequalities that we're faced with and, and that um, trying to, as an individual, come up against that seems um, kind of insurmountable. So I think that that's my answer to that. Um, and in terms of um, movies and celebrity culture, um, well, I think generally there are not a lot of black women um, in... I, I, w- I won't say movies because I have a 16-month-old, so I haven't been to the cinema for a very long time. Um, but, um, I do actually consume quite a lot of TV, and um, I'm people who know me will know that I, I'm I have a very difficult relationship, shall I say, with the TV show Scandal. I don't know if anybody. Um, and in that in that show, you have this. Um, black female lead who um, 
you would hope race would be discussed, um, and it's not. Um, that it's just not dealt with. Um, I, I, I've, I've watched every single episode. I really do hate it, but I have watched every single episode. Um, and it, race has come up, I think, about twice. Um, and not just that, the, what happens to that black female body throughout this, the, the series are the, the stereotypes that black women struggle with. So she's, um, she's a mistress and she, and she is sexually available at the beck and call of this man that she's in this relationship with. And it's, I find it so problematic. But we're, we're supposed to be really thankful and grateful that we have a black female lead, even though what's been given to us is incredibly... Um, Regressive, really. Tracy, do you want to go next? Um, okay, so in terms of um, checking tips for so-called privilege, um, for me, it's about recognising that not every woman has the platform or the space to stand up and talk about their experiences or to even critique that. So even as a black feminist, I'm very aware that I'm only putting forward a particular standpoint and position, but there's lots of other and many other women whose position is still not being heard within this umbrella term black feminism because they don't have that privileged position to be able to stand up and have the space to talk about their experiences. Um, in terms of the sort of division and split between the division and the cultural and the, and the structural, I very much agree with Lola, um, but just also to add that if you focus on the social and the cultural, it personalises it and it becomes an individual problem. So any problems become the problem was the individual, as opposed to when it's structural, then it's more about societal. So it's like how do we address problems when it's societal? Um, in terms of the third question around movies and celebrity culture, um, I think there's quite key images which reproduce and perpetuate themselves over time. So you have the sexualised image. I'm thinking, you know, the black woman has been very sexualised. So I'm thinking of Rihanna who pops into my head. Then I was thinking of um, Mistress, I mean, sorry, the Mistress in the Jezebel. You have the Jezebel. So it's the Kerry Washington character um, in that show. You have the sort of like the mammy who's very sexualised. So there's a new film out. I don't know if it's out yet in the UK called The Butler, where by Oprah Winfrey plays um, the butler's wife, who's the butler of the president. But Oprah Winfrey's sort of like playback mammy figure. And then you have the angry black woman, which is the, the head swelling. You know, that sort of. And if you look at the images which are there, it's always those images time over time again. So it's just reproducing those images. <laughs> Checking privilege, um, well, I'll just talk about what we do on our desk, and that is we, we, we sort of have put sort of definite things in place, like quotas for the number of women we want to publish every day, for the number of non-white voices, um, both online and in the pages. And it's about just checking every instinct that you have, the first name that comes into your head, um, you know, is not necessarily the, the best one. Um, the, the the writers that you always call on, um, why they why do you always call on them? Um, so it's it is I guess checking. It is just constant checking of um, what what feels instinctual, because you're recognising that not everyone 
um, has the same experience as you and that um, that needs to be reflected somehow. Um, I very much agree with what you're saying. I think that is what neoliberalism does, isn't it? It divides us all into individuals and um, um, because we're weaker that way. And so I think starting anything from an anti-capitalist perspective is only going to benefit more women. Um, and, um, yeah, I've got a two-year-old at home as well, so I haven't been to the cinema in ages. <laughs> but um, I have been watching Borgen, which is flawed in lots of ways, but I was really heartened to see the other weekend a whole episode which just completely challenged the kind of dominant narrative around sex work and ended up having a sex worker giving a, a, a perspective and getting involved in the debate and politically she shifted her whole position and um, yeah, there's possibly interesting things coming out of that whole Scandi thing but um, no, I think, yeah Thank you I know there's lots of people who want to ask questions, so I'm, I'm aware we haven't had any from the back yet. So can I take uh, two from two from the top row? Sounds like countdown. Two from the top row, uh, and one from the middle, please. Thank you very much for your talks and for all the amazing comments. Um, I had two questions, but I've decided to ask the slightly harder one potentially. Um, so, um, as I loved the talks, uh, but I've been very much thinking about how we can involve men in all of these debates and these conversations, both online and literally. I'm delighted to see men in this room. Well done, go you. Um, and that may feel like something that doesn't need to be said and shouldn't have to be said, but I still think that it does need to be said, and I think that it isn't said. And I talk about it a lot on my blog and with my partner and with my aunties who were very much involved in the last wave of feminism um, about this idea that we haven't somehow haven't taken them with us and that political correctness both in the media and I mean everywhere in the office this idea of okay she's my boss or she's my colleague and I can't talk to her about that way and I can't talk about her ass very much falls away, you know, if somebody's had too many drinks or somebody thinks they're a bit relaxed or, and, and the, feminist, the feminist once again becomes that woman in the corner. And I wondered how kind of in your workplaces and in the work that you do, you feel like, are you bringing men with you in this, in this conversation? Because at the end of the day, we need, we need them to help us get ourselves into the boardrooms and into all of those places. And I think that it should be something that we do together. And I think that the only way it will happen is if they stop thinking that we're scary and that we hate them. Thank you as well, as everyone said. Uh, it's been really lovely. I had a question specifically for Dr. Reynolds and then sort of to everyone as I'm interested in, in how to bring to mainstream, sort of in the same vein of what you were talking about, how to bring into the mainstream this idea of feminism, this idea of empowerment and get more people excited. Um, and on one of your sites, Dr. Reynolds, you had a, um, you mentioned theater workshops, which I got really excited about. And uh, I don't know if there were, it was a time crunch or I was wondering if, it's, if you could speak a little bit about using a creative vehicle for change. Thank you. In the middle there, yeah. 
Hi, thank you so much for the talk. Um, I'm Abigail. I'm a global media student. And I was wondering, given the Twitter handles on Solidarity is for White Women or Solidarity is for Miley Cyrus, um, has social media actually created enclaves um, when discussing feminism? Is feminism now... Um, Black, femi black feminism, white feminism, and how can we actually use social media to overcome these divisions? Okay. Um, was, was your question aimed at anyone in particular, or did you want everyone to, everyone to address this, this one? Okay. Um, can we start with, with you because you have a specific question oh, as well? Okay, then. Um, so, how to involve men in debates and conversation? Um, certainly, coming from a, a black feminist standpoint, um, um, black feminism is very much seen as a collective community <coughs> project in which men are involved and also children are involved so a lot of the debates and concerns are around um, raising our sons um, I talked about the way that mothering is linked to um, you know the link between mothering and preoccupation with black male youths and also issues of fathering as well so I think we are men are part of that discourse and discussion so it's not a question of how can we bring them along I would argue that they're embedded within those debates um, in terms of the mainstream theatre I specifically didn't say much about that because I was very I could go off and I could talk about that for a long time but I was very aware that it was very much focused on um, feminism in the media and what the workshops are about and I think I'm also excited about using the workshops as a, a creative vehicle for change because it's about using sort of performance based methods um, to explore these women's experiences and how they define and understand citizenship but also how the women are intervening in challenge, um, intervening and challenging some of these constructions but one of the concerns I have is that um, it's how to get some of these debates into the mainstream so that it doesn't remain a sort of niche area. Um, and I think that sort of relates to question three about feminism being in, in enclaves. Um, this might be a controversial view here, but I think um, it always has. I don't think, it, I don't think it's you know, new social media which has made feminism into enclaves. I think it's always existed. And even within um, like the printed press, there's sort of like, um, I think of like, there's like the black press, I and mean, there's the mainstream press, and some of these debates, particularly around black feminism, black women, black fem um, and black families, these have been very central and underpinned many of the sort of um, debates and discussion within the black press, but it's separate to the mainstream press. So this issue of enclaves is not a new thing. So maybe the question should be that how can we move away from being enclaves and maybe what role social media can provide in moving us away from these enclaves and niche areas? Um. Um, how do we involve men? Um, I think that, firstly, we um, explain to men that they are... I'm, I'm mindful of saying um, victimised, um, brutalised, or um, whatever, ised, um, in the same way that women are. But I do think that... Um, 
patriarchy does serve to um, create men in a particular image that is not helpful to men. Um, so I think we can um, start looking at um, what a patriarchal um, construction of masculinity does to men, and we can give them stats about male suicide rates, um, male depression rates, um, the the sorts of violence that men get involved in, um, education. We can do that if we want to kind of empirically say, look, this is affecting you bodily. Um, I am mindful, though, of trying to engage men that aren't really interested <laughs> in the movement or being... Um, integrating a feminist analysis into their lives. I'm, I'm not interested in those men. And so when you were talking about um, you know, how do we deal with those particular types of men in our private lives, personally, I call them out. I call them out if I feel I have the strength to. Sometimes I ignore them. Um, but I think generally I try to be... Um, a voice that's providing some kind of intervention, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not going to get drawn into a long discussion with you if I don't really feel that you know where I'm coming from. So that's how um, I will deal with that question. Um, I wanted to touch upon... I, d I didn't quite hear the, the second person's question directed to you. Um, I thought you were talking about... Were you talking about theatre of the oppressed? No. no, it was more about saying in terms of like using other creative methods. Okay, um, yeah. and I know that was directed at you, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. within um, the group, and we've got some black feminists sat over there, um, um, we have actually um, ran uh, a Theatre of the Oppressed workshop, which was absolutely wonderful. The women who um, turned up to that... Um, were given really active and creative tools to both talk about the microaggressions um, and racism and sexism um, they experience and have experienced, but also to kind of give them workable strategies with how to deal um, with that if that comes again in their, presents itself again in their lives. So I think we can um, do those sorts of things that... Um, yeah, play about with how we empower each other and how we teach each other. Um, and I think that um, I agree with Tracy about um, social media and enclaves. I think they've always existed. And I, I, what I was trying to do with, in my presentation was to show how um, th those enclaves have existed. I think. Um, Rather than view it negatively, and I do think it has such potential for um, division, um, but I, I, I think that there's, there's an opportunity to, uh, for it to, to do something much more positive than um, we give it credit for. Um, in, in the past, um, the various enclaves of feminism could have their um, discussions about their um, 
frustrations within with the wider movement within their own little enclave. It stayed there. It didn't it didn't reach the dominant voices within the movement. And what social media, um, for all its ills, has um, enabled is that if you really feel that you've got a critique that you want to level at um, a feminist who has written a piece and you think that she's got that wrong, you can tweet her. She will be able to see what you have written. And that is absolutely powerful. It's powerful at the level of the individual who doesn't feel that they've got a voice, but it's also powerful in that that person is engaging with an alternative um, viewpoint. And that is the first kind of um, step towards dialogue, really. And, and today I was really heartened by, uh, I won't name names, um, via Twitter, I had f- feminists who I thought I had really opposing views um, with um, about certain issues um, reach out to me via Twitter. Uh, it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been able to happen without that medium. So I do think that there's some potential for positives. Um, yeah, I really agree with Lola. Um, and I think for social, for a lot of what's been saying about social media, you could say the same about threads and pieces and that it, it, it gives you an opportunity to respond. And from the perspective of a journalist, it, 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 I see that and I can do something with that. So I can see the counter-debates are bubbling and I can dip in and commission someone. Um, yeah, I think within reason, these debates are... Um, can be really productive and powerful. Um, on men, I think, yeah, I agree with Lola about reminding them of the ways in which an anti-feminist world constructs them. I see that in how the male writers we have somehow don't feel that they can write about things like family or the way that they live their lives. They have to write about sort of the impersonal political stuff. Um, and so it's about how can we shift that and encourage them to um, get involved in debates. I think a lot of the negativity to feminist debates from some men comes from exactly some of the issues we've raised that um, a certain brand of feminism is seen to really exclude specifically working class men um, and I think there, is, there are ways that as feminists we can um, you know, broaden the appeal of what we're saying by you know, being more aware of that um, yeah Okay, let's take another round. We've got... Uh, yes. This is a mess. All right, just give people a moment to leave. There's a question in the middle. And right at the back, at the top... <laughs> and right here. <laughs> okay, and, and yes, and then can you can you then pass it back and then right up to the top, please. Um, I've got a question for Tracy. Um, 
The fact that London supposedly thrives on being and embraces being multicultural and multi-ethnic, um, what then is gained through demonising, I guess, um, like migrant mothers and black women and, yeah. Okay, um, can we take the questions from the back and the ones from the middle as well, please? Hiya, um, I'm, I, this is kind of aimed more towards Lola and Natalie and I'm really sorry because I actually missed Natalie's talk because I came a bit late, so I'm sorry if I'm saying something that... <laughs> is not related to that. Um, but I really liked um, Lola's talk, um, and I thought that was really important. I really liked the article that you published in SIF yesterday as well. Um, and just kind of going back to the intersectionality debates, um, I was, um, I've kind of analysed a lot of articles about feminism and race in The Guardian, um, and I actually found them um, quite... Um, as much as like there was space within the Guardian to um, to kind of promote the intersectional perspective, I feel like the way that the debate sometimes is framed actually reinforces um, white feminism, and like it doesn't really like the the kind of debate format kind of doesn't allow for like it kind of situates people's perspectives perspectives as equal and doesn't kind of think about power inequalities. Um, between black feminists and kind of white feminism. Um, so, yeah, I was just kind of wanted to hear your comments on that. Okay, and there was, and then just one more, we can take one more question in this round. It was from the middle there. I'm not the right person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, My question has a lot to do with that one, actually, uh, about Comment is Free. Uh, Are the writers all paid for Comment is Free? And I assume it's kind of on a freelance basis. So I was wondering, you showed us the, um, the graph of male and female writers. And I was wondering what the ratio is like for the presumably contracted writers at a place like The Guardian, and if you think that there's a possibility of kind of a tokenism thing happening where they can say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter how many white males we have or whatever because we have comment is free. Um, I really like comment is free as well. I'm not criticizing. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, so do you want to to take the the second question first? Yep. Um, so, yes, we pay all of our writers. Um, we wouldn't pay you if, for example, you were um, David Cameron writing about, you know, why you should win the next election. Um, but So if, you, if you're writing in the capacity of your professional job, in which you're already getting paid for, then, um, um, you know, in certain cases you won't get paid. But basically all freelance journalists get paid, yes. I know that that's not the case for lots of um, similar kind of online comment sites. Um, we don't pay loads, but definitely pay. Um, tokenism. Um, I, d- I, 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 I don't think it's, it's fair or professional of me to get drawn on sections of the garden that I don't edit. Um, um, and maybe this relates to the first question as well in terms of, um, um, you know, 
I, I joked at the beginning about apologising for the media, but at the same time I can't answer for all those decisions. But, but on comment is free um, on, on the website in terms of the writers that we have on contracts like one that Lola is on. Um, off the top of my head, the gender split is pretty much 50-50. Um, Lola is our only contracted non-white writer um, um, Bim added a woman who um, wrote for us before, but for various reasons, that didn't continue in a, in a regular capacity. On the comment pages, there's definitely a, a, a male bias. Um, and, yes, um, you know, can commenters free be seen as tokenistic? Well, that's a negative way of looking at what I think is the huge potential of, of digital media. Um, and, you know, Lola's piece yesterday was published in The Guardian today, so we do try and shift these, the, 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 those the spaces. Um, um, but I think for the reasons that I outlined, there, there is still a legacy there of a particular type of voice being seen as the one that has the authority to opine on all sorts of things, and that particular type of voice historically has been male, white, very privileged. Um, which isn't to say that they're all awful. Some of them are brilliant and, uh, and write brilliantly about, about things. Um, so I hope I don't sound offensive, but, yeah, I hope that answers your question as well. Lady, did you want to pick up on any of those final choices? I think the debates are framed um, in that problematic way. I, I, I think that that happens across the media, um, and that that is a um, unfortunate way in which we get debate in, or you know if that's um, print, online, on TV, that I think that is how debate is kind of um, structured. So I think it'd be looking, rather than singling one publication, I think that's problematic, that um, discussion has to be argument, and, that, and, and that's just how we um, see it. So um, that's that uh, question. Um, I think the the point that you're making about um, perspectives um, appearing to be equal um, when there is this power dynamic operating is what the audience needs to be mindful of, um, and I, I think if if we're if we're thinking um, about structural inequality, then we take that on board. And I think that it, it's indicative of the fact that that's still not really where we're at. Um, people can, if, if I were to say something about race, lots of people do feel that they can come back at me and say, you're being slightly racist. And that, that is about us doing just generally as a society doing some learning about um, structural inequality. Um, and then in terms of um, tokenism, um, I'm in this uh, very fortunate position where um, I'm able to speak from my set of experiences. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I feel like a, a token, but I, I think that it's, it's, 
It's a two-way process. It's um, my responsibility as someone who's writing to, to feel that I can write about other things other than race and gender. Um, and that's a, that's a kind of struggle that I have with myself because those are things I feel comfortable with. Um, and so I think that it's incumbent on the person writing as well as the people commissioning them that they don't do that kind of pigeonholing which then brings about tokenism. Okay, so um, there was a specific question which was said, which in a multicultural society, what can be gained from demonising migrant and BME groups? Yes, it's a very multicultural society, but it's also a very divisive society, so there's great gaps between the rich and the poor, between um, the haves and the have-nots in London. And I think, um, so what can be gained is very much about um, demonising black and minority ethnic is very much a political tool um, which is used to maintain the status quo but also to ignore these wider structural inequalities that we talked about. So um, what can be gained from um, demonising the migrant mother? We see it playing out now in terms of tapping into the fears around immigration and as I, I talked about in the, the paper earlier about the fears around what, you know, um, immigration from Bulgaria or mean so you know we see that and we, I, I talked about the fact that the riots it was tapping into fears around um, the black youth <laughs> and um, again making it making it issues to do with black youth and also their families wider than rather than addressing some of these wider structural inequalities okay thank you take the question from down here and from there, any more hands up? Um, question from I'll, I'll take four because we're we're on our last fifteen. Minutes, so. <laughs> okay. Question here. There's two questions up there, and there's one question over there. Thank you. Mm. Shall I start? Um, my question is to Tracy, um, oh. especially about that, because you um, you mentioned this article or generally the numbers that came out in 2012 that one in four, I think, children that are um, born mm. in the UK are born to immigrant parents. Mm. And I was quite surprised because I remember reading these articles as well, um, and I remember them being so positive about that. I remember especially one in The Guardian, I think, and one in The Independent, um, that that number was being used to say, but look, that's a good thing because our, like the, the British-born mothers, they are not producing enough children to pay, you know, that are needed for the pension plan or whatever. Um, and I was wondering if you, um, if you think there are positive uh, looks in the media as well or positive representations of uh, um, immigrants or you know, minorities as mothers especially, minority mm -hmm. women as mothers especially, and um, if there's probably even a chance uh, to, to, for um, you know, better look at that. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to relate something uh, that was uh, said early on um, about uh, the position of men. Um, I think I'm, myself, I'm coming from a pretty privileged position. I mean, I'm white, I'm a man, I'm middle class. Uh, in, many, in many ways, I'm representing the system. Uh, but whenever I came across feminism, uh, including tonight, I actually found it... Um, 
eye-opening, refreshing, and liberating, actually. I think there's some, uh, thank you very much for that. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, sort of uh, challenging me to think outside the box. And um, I think what you might call the uh, dominant discourse, I think there's something oppressive and harmful about it. Um, and so, yeah, no, thank you very much uh, that, well, that you're challenging that. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask um, what your impression has been of, of the, and admittedly that there's only a sort of slight change, I think, but there seem to have been quite a few, a few um, stories, particularly over the summer, um, that would seem to sort of depict, I suppose, more women in a more positive light in terms of their feminist principles from around the world. So um, the situation with the, the young girl from Pakistan, um, Malala, who was um, shot and is now her book is being publicised quite widely about her story. And, and then there was a lot of press about the Pussy Riots um, stories there. And I just wondered what your impression is, of, and this is to the whole panel, um, of the kind of voice that they are that they are being given in, in the UK and maybe in the world press um, and the kind of publicity they've gained. Okay, and there's one last question. Um, if there was one thing you could do to improve the coverage or change about the coverage of, the, um, of feminism in the media, what would that be? Um, and the second point, which is kind of related, my daughter is 13 at the weekend, and I don't think they cover a lot of things in school, and I don't think that she would understand um, what, where the feminist movement was coming from. And do you feel that it engages enough with very young girls, teenage girls, younger teenage girls? Thank you. Okay. Um, see. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Challenge. Oh gosh! Well, I'll just answer some. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll answer the, the question about the one in four are foreign-born and um, whether that was a positive. Um, I'm ambivalent about that, and the reason why I'm saying I'm ambivalent about that because in, even when there's a positive spin put on it there still seems to be this underlying assumption as these migrant mothers as breeders. And it's always focused on their reproduction. There seems to be this obsession with their reproduction. Um, so this is why I'm saying I'm ambivalent about that. Um, so in terms of stories that depict women in a positive light, um, I would also, the examples you gave, it's you know, particularly the, the young girl, that's almost the acceptable face and the acceptable voice because it's still very much positioned as a victim. So it's an acceptable, you know, it's a nice feel-good story, but it's still casting her as a victim. And the, the pussy riots, it's happening somewhere else. It's happening in Russia, which, so again, it's this showing, again, how Britain is great because we're not... It's almost challenging how, how good we are because, you know, aren't we wonderful? We, have, we don't have all of these issues in, uh, compared to Russia. So it's about this sort of <laughs> British superiority, if I'm making sense. So, yeah. Um, 
how would we change the coverage? I think that's. Um, thank you for that question. Who asked, answered that? Asked that question. Thank you for that because I think that's a really important question. And being an academic, I think somebody could write a PhD on that <laughs> as well. Um, I think the issue of having more representation of women, but particularly black and minority ethnic women, and I think I take Lola's point about not always wanting to or feeling like you have to write about issues to do with race and uh, um, race and gender for example but I think nonetheless it's still important to have these women represented because the cultural values and, and you know their cultural values will underpin whatever they do so whatever if I was given a topic to write about which may not necessarily be about my race or my gender the sort of values around respect, around social justice, around inequality and around inclusion, these are integral to who I am as a black woman and that would be embedded in what I write. So I think it's important to have that representation there. Thank you, Lola. Um, I'll start with the question about... Um, the positives over the the summer um, and agree with uh, Tracy um, one of the things with um, Malala um, and it was the, the same with um, the the Delhi rape is that for me horrendous um, as they are. Um, implicit in some of the uh, kind of coverage is a particular construction of um, men from the global south that is is problematic for me because um, I think um, it's simplistic and it positions itself um, as though we we've got men who are fully enlightened, that don't rape women, that uh, don't murder women. Um, and I, I, I think that the reporting um, does that and it, it possibly isn't aware of that. We, we, we're not really aware that we're consuming it in that way. Um, the question about um, how do we uh, engage young people. So I'm a teacher, I'm a secondary teacher, um, and I currently uh, teach at an all-boys school, but before I taught at a, a mixed school. And um, I, th I think that once you start those conversations, that actually teenagers, teenage girls, are uh, quite conversant with... Um, the pressures they are facing as teenage, teenage girls. Um, I think that you're right. Um, at, at school is a great opportunity for um, teachers to switch young people onto these issues. And there are loads of what I've, I've done... Um, Units on looking at um, language in newspapers. I've done stuff on um, how um, toys are advertised. I've looked at um, the representation of women in particular novels and plays. I think if, if you have that analysis, brilliant. You can actually, especially in a subject like English, you can apply it. I think the, the real issue is that for so many people who are teachers... They're not feminists. They don't have a feminist analysis. And 
they could care less, and, it, and, it, and it's about a kind of wider societal um, issue about people accepting that there is the real um, reasons for why you know feminists exist and why we have feminism and what it seeks to accomplish. Um, and then, how do we change coverage? Yeah, I mean, just to add just second what Tracy said, basically. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I will third what Tracy and Lola have said about <laughs> some of the global um, sort of the Malala Pussy Riot stuff. Um, I mean, what I would you know, maybe for another time would be interesting is to explore how um, a, someone in my position would publish a piece that, you know, essentially said, you know, Malala, not all that kind of thing. You know, that's, you're, you're pushing against a huge weight of, of opinion. So um, I think that's a really interesting one, you know, lots of examples to examine about how, how, how you can do that in a way which doesn't completely alienate people or get you fired um, <laughs> um, young readers I mean it's a bit of a holy grail for the, the, the media um, newspaper circulation is massively declining um, while a lot of young people consume um, um, things online news doesn't factor very highly in that um, so I think it's about publishing young people um, um, who can sort of speak to other young people in a way that, um, in a register that uh, that they understand, and I think that appeals to them. And I think it's also about this thing that the Nina Power quote was getting at, which is just to push back on this idea, which I think has slightly gained ground um, recently, that everything you could do could be feminist um, you know wearing lipstick is feminist and you know whatever um, so I think and there's a, this great onion article which kind of spoofs that but yeah so I think that there's a definite um, tension between those who are trying to say we need to make the movement appealing and therefore we shouldn't um, shut anything down and actually framing things in a way that um, is true to to, to what is trying to be achieved um, and the one thing I hate those sort of questions <laughs> so I mean I, I outlined three things can I keep those please <laughs> okay we're, we're down to the last couple of minutes so there's probably time for just one or two. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> so difficult. Can I take a question from the end down here and one from the other end up there? So, so yeah, here and there, and that will that will have to be it. And can I ask you to keep them really short and the panel keep your answers pretty short too? Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your talks. They're all really interesting. Uh, I actually had a question about the regulation of the media and censorship, and whether you thought that that could be beneficial to the feminist cause at all. I just have an example. There's a front page of a newspaper which shows students at LSE who face daily sexism, and then right next to that, there's an ad for spearmint rhino. So things like that. Do you think that? It would, it would benefit the feminism. Thank you. And yeah, hi. Um, I have a question for Lola. Um, you, so you touched in your talk about um, 
you, t you touched on the limits of academic debate and the importance of not merely um, stating your tolerance and your inter intersectionality, but of also um, the importance of trying to affect change. Um, and in one of your other answers, you talked about your workshops and things like that. Um, I would love to hear about your activism and your um, experience of activism, obstacles you've come across, um, and things like that. Okay. Censorship question first. <laughs> Regulation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we should be instinctively wary of censorship. I think engaging is a better avenue to go down. I think advertising is a whole different thing um, to be debated on another day, maybe. <laughs> um, Okay, then um, I'll answer the uh, question directed at me. Um, so, um, my feminist activism really takes place with the group Black Feminists. Um, we meet once a month. Um, if you go online, you can um, find us or just wait a couple of minutes and I'll speak to you about it. Um, and we do lots of organising, we do workshops. Um, we have actually run um, summer schools for young um, women. Um, we do lots. So, yeah, I'll, I'll speak. To, I'm just looking at the time. It's yes. eight. So. <laughs> thank you. Um, I would just like to uh, thank you all very much and also to thank one more time our speakers. And to <laughs>